You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. This week on SENZ Trailblazers, we're very lucky to be joined by the recently retired international race walker, the best New Zealand uh, has ever had, that's for sure, Alana Barber. Alana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us. Um, how are you, first of all? Oh, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. No, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about all things race walking and um, about a little bit about my personal journey. So, yeah, so thank you. Um, I'm well, I'm in Auckland, but I'm probably in one of the best places in Auckland to be, which is Waikiki Island. Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> this is, this is um, where I live with my partner Damien Blocky and um, and so we just feel very fortunate um, to be living here and the weather's been amazing for Auckland so despite uh, the lockdown I think there's a lot of positive things going on too. Yeah you are very lucky to be on Maiheke Island I think that would be a dream for uh, many people uh, even just to go and visit there it's an amazing place but to live there would be absolutely beautiful. Um, let's go back to where everything started we want to get to know you we want to understand who you are so we have to go back to the beginning first um tell us about your upbringing where did you grow up and who was in your family who was in your bubble Mm, so I grew up in Papakura and I went to a primary school called Amworth school which I don't it doesn't exist anymore but it was a private school where um, that was based in the Papakura Army Camp. It was quite unusual. Um, and um, they rented out some of the buildings um, for for the students from the army. And so a typical school day was seeing army trucks, trucks go by because I was still using the facilities there. Um, and in terms of my, my family, so it's my brother, my uh, mum and dad and me. So quite a small family, um, but... Um, yeah, but very, we were very close. And growing up, um, my biggest inspiration was my mum. She had a huge influence on particularly my sporting endeavours. Mm. She uh, would often get out the photo album showing her, uh, showing off her success as being a, being a runner. Uh, so she ran for New Zealand and Great Britain at the um, – 19th, most probably a biggest achievement was the 1974 Commonwealth Games, but when it was in Christchurch, so that was amazing for her to run um, in front of the home crowd, and uh, yeah, just seeing everything um, that she had achieved and just the things that she gained out of being an athlete representing her country, I was just like, I want to do that. That just sounds amazing. There's so many things to unpack already. Um, We're going to go more in depth about your mother because you've talked about it so much that she's been such an inspiration to you. But first, um, the army camp, that is fascinating. Tell us more about that. So 
did you if you'd obviously see the army trucks and it was still a working base but um what did the school have to do with it did you use you use part of their facilities but were you also like would you play near what was going on and things um yeah so we were just using their facilities we had nothing to do with the army camp I think they just rented the buildings out to um this yeah it was a private school so um very small it was select entry like they only picked I think I joked because I joke about the school because I feel like it was all these people who didn't quite fit into other schools. And so we're all quite unique that we were allowed to be our unique selves in the school because it was so small. The classes were a maximum of 15 students per class. Um, so it meant we got individual attention and it meant we could be quite different and we didn't suit, all of us didn't really suit large groups that I think we'd just get lost and or would be would disturb people or um <laughs> yeah so it was yeah a unique experience and um and w- there would they would still have activities like so the army training would be going on around our school um but it's funny because when you're that young you that's just normal like it wasn't anything unique it was kind of exciting though seeing yeah. trucks go by and them doing drills <laughs> and um and that kind of thing um yeah so it was it was yeah, it was awesome but it was the norm like yeah <laughs> seeing them do like blowing up stuff um <laughs> hearing hearing it and seeing it from afar um it was just quite normal <laughs> for kids I imagine that would also be pretty cool um why did your mum and dad decide to send you that to that school it was mainly because of my brother. Um, he was diagnosed with autism. Oh, right. Um, and he, and the normal school system didn't really work for him. He wasn't getting the attention he needed, or it didn't it didn't suit him. So both me and my brother went to Amworth School, yeah. and um, and it just allowed him to be different mm-hmm. and to learn in a different way. And the teachers had time to because there weren't as many students had time to give him that attention that he needed um yeah is he little brother or big brother and how close were the two of you growing up um he's big brother yeah uh so yeah very close yeah um I um yeah would often um yeah we would play together and I mean he was your typical big brother in some ways (laughs) like he'd always um he's always you know, <laughs> stealing things from me and, <laughs> you know, always be getting the best things. And I, um, but, uh, yeah, but you, um, quite cool that, um, I think I learnt a lot from him, which is now, um, because now I'm studying psychology yeah. at university. So he was inspiring, um, for me to then venture out into eventually, now um learning about how different minds work and um that and I think the stigma of of it isn't there's no stigma of being different and having a unique mind um yeah so because I grew up with it yeah (laughs) I'm very open-minded to the different things and the different ways of people the the ways that people think and the what the things that they do I'm I I think I'm very open-minded because I grew up with 
with Brendan. <laughs> I think it's really cool that you can talk about it and, as you say, reduce the stigmas around it and normalize it as well. Um, if your brother's inspired you uh, a lot and you just said he's inspired you to study psychology, let's go back to your mum, who we know inspired you massively. Like, when did you realize what she had done and what she had achieved as an athlete? Uh, well, I think um, it was just seeing the photographs and mm. the uniforms that she had accumulated over the years from representing New Zealand was really cool. And as a kid, trying on those uniforms. So trying on the New Zealand kit from the 70s. And let me tell you that <laughs> they had some really cool kit. And now because it's like retro, it's extra cool. Like you can't get that kind of stuff. Um, she also had a sponsorship with Adidas. So she, Your mum so was the cool mum. She all this Adidas gear, and it's when um, the Adidas clothing was all um, designed and made in Germany, so the quality of it has lasted the test of time. So even now, I'm still wearing the gear, and it the, the colour hasn't faded, um, and, um, and the style, it hasn't distorted over time. So it's, um, it's yeah, it was really cool. Um, being growing up and trying on that gear and going out for a run wearing the New Zealand kit and I, I'd wear the full kit out um, when I was just going for like a jog around the block. That's so <laughs> cool. Yeah. When did you get the idea that you wanted to become an athlete? Like what sports did you play growing up? I tried a lot of different things. Um, so you're mostly track and field because yeah. mum would take me to the local track meets. So my first club I belonged to was Papakura Athletics Club. And um, every Wednesday was club night. So I would go there and try all the, the different events. Although the field events, I really didn't get the hang of. I you know, when it came to equipment and using it, I just, I was really uncoordinated. So, but the running was simple. I got that. I just needed to, um, you know, I just needed to know the start line and the finish line and nothing else mattered. Uh, so that was, that was great. But I never, I never remember winning or, and I, maybe it didn't really matter. It was just about the doing of the event and trying different distances and having fun with my friends um, yeah, so that, um, and then later when I was 15 and at school, um, I joined the rowing squad. So my running kind of got pushed aside and I, I actually just joined the rowing because my friend wanted to, um, <laughs> to, and I was just keeping her company. Little did I realize that, um, so this was my secondary school, diocesan school, um, they have this great heritage um, of being really successful at And do you have fond memories as well from the Marty Cup that year, 2004? Mm. Yeah, it was in Twizel. And I remember um, it being at the start of the race and you've got to, because I was in the bow, so you've got to hold the, the buoy to keep the boat straight. And the water is freezing and... I think I, I I think it's like I don't um, being put in bow position is like you know drawing the short straw um, <laughs> because you get you have to put your hand in the cold water and, and keep it there until the race starts basically holding the the, um, the back of the boat straight 
Um, and sometimes it takes ages, especially if it's a windier day, for all the boats to get together at the start line. Um, and I remember that morning of the race, it being particularly cold, and I was just dying to get my hand out of the water, you know, to, <laughs> to start the race. Um, but I got put in the bow because I was I was the smallest. I was going to um, say, because rowers are really big and race walkers would be the total opposite. You're tiny. Yeah. Exactly, but it was an advantage in some ways because it meant that they they um, had a really beautiful boat, but it, it just got narrow at the bow, <laughs> and I was the only one that could fit in the bow of the boat. Um, so, um, yeah, that was that was cool. <laughs> one of the bonuses about being little, but usually people would mistake me for being the coxswain. I was going to say, were you a coxie? But no, we've got that straight. No. No way! I, yeah, I was definitely wanted to be doing doing it and being, um, you know, doing the hard work. Um, not the coxswains don't do hard work, but the physical hard work. Yeah. Um, well, it's really cool to hear about the rowing career that you had before uh, the race walking and everything that it taught you. Um, you're listening to Trailblazers here on SENZ, and we're talking to a recently retired race walker, Alana Barber. Plenty more coming up right after this. Okay, we're 14 minutes in, but that's okay because we can take like a little bit of time off the other segments. Mm. Or, or you can like, I don't mind that if you edit some of the bits because I do do a lot of um, ah, uh, and I know that's all natural. Yeah, but... it's all natural. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, we'll go in. Are you happy with how it's all going? Okay, perfect. We'll go into um, part two now. Welcome back to Trailblazers here on SENZ. Uh, we're very lucky to be joined by a star-studded athletic star for New Zealand, race walker Alana Barber, who has a countless accolades to her name. She won a silver medal at the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in a 30-degree heat. And we want to get into the race walking a little bit more. Now that we've heard your background, other sports that you participated in, um, what's your earliest memory of actually race walking, not just the running around the block or going Going down to the track. Mm, yeah, it was um when I was twelve years old. I my mum had she she had actually joined a walking club, and because she could she was having trouble keeping up her running training, and so because she just kept getting injured, so she joined um, a walking club. Um, but this was a power walking club. And there's quite a big difference between power walking and race walking. And I would come along to that with her. But she was frustrated because I think most of these people wanted to chat and she wanted to race. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose I got that competitiveness from her. Um, so she wasn't into the going for long walks, chatting. <laughs> uh, so that's when she explored more options of how what she can do. Um but she did enjoy walking, but that's and that's when she found out about race walking. And there was a club called Race Walking Auckland, which she belonged to, and I joined her. And that's when she learned that ah, walking can be really competitive. You can go really fast, and this technique allows you to go fast. So, um, and you can race, and there's these rules that you've got to um, abide by, and there's this all this this yeah this it kind of opened up a world that she never really knew about previously and that's when I also was exposed to this world and I learned about the rules and interesting enough that as a 12 year old um, and I say this to kids that I now coach that 
and I, I've noticed it, that they just get the technique really easily. When you're that age, I'm not sure if it's the fact that you 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 don't have any kind of preconceived ideas about what yeah. walking is, or but they just get the technique, or maybe it's the flexibility and being, um, you know, um, being able to kind of move your hips in the way that's that's needed for race walking. But you get it quite easily, and I got the technique straight away, quicker than my mum. <laughs> <laughs> so that was cool. Before and, we um, go, oh sorry. No, 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 you go, yeah. I want to go into the uh, technique in more detail. Um, But before we do, help me understand how quick you're actually going. So your PB for a 20-kilometer race walk, is it 132.19? That is my second to best time. Well, give us your best one then. (laughs) My PB is at 1 hour 31.32, yeah, for 20K. So if we do the maths on that, that's a little over four minutes per K. Yeah, it's four. Yeah, just a, a little bit over four, four and a half minutes per k. Sometimes it's better, particularly for runners, to understand the time as you use a half marathon time. Yes. So when I'm talking to runners, I'll say, "Well, I do about a one hour thirty six for a half marathon." So and you're running, are walking like, faster than a lot of people are running. Yeah, then actually, exactly most people are running. Let's be honest here. Mm, and I've had fun um, doing fun fun runs and walks, half marathons, where I've passed a lot of, <laughs> been in front of a lot of runners, and um, <laughs> they, but I always think that everyone's got different goals, I, yeah, so it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, well, talking about that, because it seems incredibly difficult to be able to go at that speed, and then um, play by the rules as well, so um, tell us what the rules of race walking actually are, and then how you do that from a technical perspective. Mm, so the, there's two main rules. One being you've got to land with a straight knee, um, so straight leg, so ideally land on your heel, and then that leg has got to remain straight as it goes underneath your body. Uh, so that's the, the first rule. And yeah. the second rule is that you must have one foot on the ground at all times. So that's how you compare it with running, because when you run, you have both feet clearly um, off the off the ground, and there's quite a lot of buoyance Um jolting and buoyancy where the um walking doesn't have that it's a lot more smoother it's um and and then when I when I explain the rules people are like they might try and do it but they often like will try and do the moonwalk or something but it, it isn't it isn't two feet on the ground at all times it's just one one foot on the ground at all times <laughs> yeah so one leg straight and one foot on the ground at all times and that's judged by the human eye um I know race walking's got a had a lot of flack regarding um, when people do see it, and then there's slow mo footage, and you see top athletes uh, with two feet off the ground. But it, it isn't judged with a video; it's judged with the human eye. So they're probably with the speeds that we're going. There probably is a little bit of time that we at both feet are off the ground. Yeah. But it's 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 about being it's judged with the human eye, and um, there is a certain like millisecond that you can be off the ground which the eye doesn't pick up and how do you make sure that you're abiding by those rules when as I say you're going at these speeds like four and a half minute case yeah well that's when um coaching is really important and judging and and races um comes into it so in a in a race we'll if a judge thinks that we might be close to breaking one of those rules, then they'll warn us by holding out a yellow paddle. It seems kind of old-fashioned, but <laughs> this is what they do. They hold out a, a yellow paddle just to warn us whether it's um, 
we're not landing straight or whether two feet are off the ground. Um, and judges will try and warn us before giving us a red card if they can, unless you're blatantly breaking the rules, then they might give us um, a red card straight away. And you need three red cards from different judges to then be disqualified. Has it ever happened to you? No, it hasn't. Um, like, I'm, I feel really thankful. And, yeah. um, because sometimes it's not necessary. Well, most athletes that get DQ'd, it's not because they're purposely breaking the rules. Mm. It's just because they, they're fatiguing. And um, particularly our main distance is 20K or 50K. So over that period, you can really get tired and holding, the, holding those rules is quite is quite difficult towards the end of a race. So I haven't been DQ'd, um, but I've, I've often been on two red cards. Yeah. And in fact, um, my last big international race, which was World Champs, 2019 World Champs, I had two red cards by 5K. So I had another 15K to go. Um, yeah, and, is that quite nerve-wracking? Very nerve-wracking because at 5K you're not tired. Yeah. So if, you're, if the judges think – feel that you're not complying with the rules and you're not tired then what are you going to be like when you're when you're really fatiguing yeah exactly. so you've sometimes got to slow down and hold back um and just be really cautious so a lot of when you talk to a lot of race walkers at the end of the race they might say oh I, I really felt like I couldn't push myself in that race because my technique was holding me back and, that, and that's part of the challenge of it. Thank you for teaching us and talking to us about the intricacies of race walking because it will be new to a lot of us and it's super interesting. Uh, right after this, we're going to talk to Alana Barbara about her big move to England, uh, heading to her first world championships and her first Olympic experience in Rio in 2016 as well. Stay with us here on SENZ. Well, Alana, uh, things are starting to get um, serious for you when it comes to race walking. So you make the big move to England. I think it's in 2012, was it? That's right, yeah. And and why did you decide to move to England? What was it that enticed you to that side of the world? Well, I'd always wanted to do a overseas experience. Yeah. And because my mum was born in England, it gave me a, um, a British passport that I could um, I could also get. So it just meant I was flexible to work over there if I needed to and um, I didn't have to worry about visa. Um, I'd also met um, another race walker, Quentin Rue, who's one of our um, champion. Another great um, Kiwi. Another, yeah, Olympian. And... Um, and we we had a thing, <laughs> so um, and he also wanted to go overseas. I think both of us were really keen to um, to get better with our race walking, and we knew that um, to get better, we needed to explore other ways of of how to train better than what we already knew, um, because we still had a we had a lot to learn and. I think to be the yeah one of the you know to be up there with the world's best, um, the, you know the option the best option for us we felt was going over to England because we we'd heard about a, a British race walking centre that was based over there so we thought that might be an idea uh, for for us to maybe be part of that but we were open to exploring lots of ideas we we're just open to. Yeah, new opportunities. I suppose that's what every, why everyone might move over to another country. It's just, yeah, exploring different ways of life and new ideas. Uh, and that's what we did. And 
we were invited up to the British Racewalking Centre to stay there, and this is based in Leeds, Yorkshire, um, to stay and just try it out to get to know the people. Uh, a, um, a gentleman kindly let us stay with him, who Aww. is a, a lecturer at the university. Um, so the, the Racewalking Centre is also part of the Leeds um, Metropolitan University. So... Um, Sorry, not the Metropolitan University. It's another Leeds Brickett. Actually, I have to double check what the name of the university is, but one of the universities in Leeds. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that Racewalking Centre is part of that. Um, so they use the same facilities. And I stayed with one of the lecturers who's a co-coach um, also for the Racewalking Group there. And that just gave Quentin and I an eye-opener of, all the things that we weren't doing that they were doing um, and and just being part of a group to train rather than yeah. um, training constantly on our own and just the only time that we would really be part of a group was when we were racing in New Zealand but this was a proper group that trained twice a day that also exposed us to a whole other element of race walking training, which is the importance of strength and conditioning coach, um, strength and conditioning work, which we'd never even really thought of, the importance of gym, going to the gym um, frequently and getting stronger and what to do. And so we were given that guidance. Um, yeah, so it was a great, yeah, great opportunity and pivotal um, for me um, and my achievements after that were a result of that time um that time there was that really the breakthrough for you then was that when you knew I can be successful on the world stage in the sport well when I moved there just to give you a perspective of how far away I was from being um, considered for the Olympics yeah I, my PB was one hour um, one hour 56 for 20k um, in New Zealand so before moving to England that was my personal best for 20k and to qualify for the Olympics for New Zealand you needed to be doing to be even considered you needed to be doing one hour 33 so you were trying to shave off more than 20 minutes yes it's a lot so of time so if anyone um, asked me you know like um what's your dreams and ambitions <laughs> well my dream was to go to the Olympics and that's what I needed to do and people would I think any normal person would say, oh, I think you should be doing something else or aiming for something else because you're way off. But you um, did it. Yeah, well, it didn't because I loved doing it and I loved the challenge and I was so curious to know how fast my body could go and if I could do it that I suppose my own amb ambition got in the way. I just needed to figure out ways I was going to do it, and this move to England with Quentin was was one was part of that um, of you know trying to get a bit closer to that that dream, and being part of a group, being having routine training sessions with part of a group environment, learning new skills um, to be better, and also what was really important was I was training with a group that also had the same aspirations of going to the Olympics yeah. and they were all way better than me. So that's what helped bring me up. I yeah. wasn't I wasn't overwhelmed by them being way better than me. I embraced it 
and I suppose it's like embracing the lap, the two and a half k lap around Waikiki. It's just embracing the challenge. Um, so that I think that was really important for me to close that gap between that being that one hour fifty six walker to that one hour that sub one hour thirty three walker. It's amazing. That's such a big transformation. Um, let's transition or fast forward a little bit to um, the World Championships in Beijing. Um, you set a New Zealand record there and you finished 18th overall. Mm-hmm, what was right. what was that experience like for you after mm-hmm. everything you've been through? Yeah, that was my first time wearing a black singlet and uh, so very special in my mm. career. Uh, I Just prior to that, I had, had made that big breakthrough where my time the year before my time went down to one hour 37 sorry one hour 35 so I made a massive leap from being a one hour 50 walker to it just all of a sudden happened that you know years of being a one hour 50 something walker then suddenly making that breakthrough to being a one hour 35 walker um met that and qualified me for for Beijing world champs and it was like these dreams were, were actually coming true and all these years of work were, were paying off. Um, you know, but, um, when I qualified for uh, world champs, I was ranked um, 50th out of 50 athletes. But I, that, I didn't mind. It didn't bother me. Um, I was just excited to be there. And I think I, think I thrive off the atmosphere of actually being the worst and being with people better than me and I thrive off being like okay what can I do and then everything I I do um so in the race every person I passed was like this is great I'm I'm supposed to be last I'm passing someone this is great and then that gave me this positive feedback so I started the race the first 1k I was I was um coming last and then throughout the race I was just picking off people as the race progressed and as the heat got um, stronger people were tiring and I was reeling in the joys of um, getting faster and well actually to be honest I don't think I was getting faster I think other people were just slowing down because of the heat conditions Um, and then yeah being ranked coming through to to come to place 18th was just amazing and this is your first time ever wearing a black singlet, like your first major international competition. Mm, yeah. It yeah, sounds so. like you really embraced like being that underdog and um, chasing other people. And that, as you say, like you would really rise to the occasion and to the challenge. Um, there's so much more that we need to talk about. We need to get into your Olympic experience in Tokyo because I imagine that would have been a pretty special moment for you. And of course, the silver medal at the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. We will do that right after this. Well, we're very lucky to be joined by Alana Barber, international race walker who's recently retired after having a pretty incredible career in the sport uh, on Trailblazers here on SENZ. Alana, you've just spoke to us about that moment in 2015, your first time ever wearing the black singlet, and it was a phenomenal result at the World Championships as well, um, finishing 18th in the field. But what about the Olympic experience? What was it like when you got the call to say you would be an Olympian? Well, because training was going so well and everything, you know, my dreams were finally happening that I was 
at that point, I regarded myself as a professional athlete. In fact, I'd given up my my day job, as, um, and um, and I was really putting all my effort into into being the best athlete I could be. And I was traveling around a lot um, around 2015, 2016. So leading up to the Olympics and before getting named, I had. I was getting a lot of international experience and being invited to races and even getting a appearance fees and prize money was just like, this was the ultimate, this is the dream. This is the life that I yeah. always you know, wanted to, wanted to have. Um, so being then selected for the Olympics was like, okay, this is, this is the next step. This is yeah. what happens. Part of the journey. Like this is, um, so even though I read like it was um, amazing and, and obviously it was, um, I feel so honoured to be picked. It was that this is this is the dream that I'm now living and this is, you know, what happens. It, I'm doing the work. I'm doing everything I need to be to be an Olympian. I'm living the Olympic life. Now this is what follows. Um, a couple of years later, you're obviously then named to compete at the Commonwealth Games. And it's very close to home, this one. We're talking about um, just a couple of hours on a plane on the Gold Coast. And there is the most beautiful story leading up to this Games that your father um, was leaving New Zealand for the first time in, I think, 45 years to come over and watch his daughter, to watch you race. You race that day in incredibly hot conditions, but probably not hot compared to um, other places in the world that you've raced. Um, I still remember watching it on TV. You pick up a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games. Take us back. What was that like? It was perfect for me, really, because um, I, you know, I'm good with um, hot conditions. I'm good under those uh, that type of environment, but also it being close to home. I, I had it was it was more comfortable in, in some ways because it was a familiar environment. Mm. A lot of the people um, watching the race there were people I knew, were people that um, were, I was close to, and of course my family being there um, was just the ultimate because they had never seen me race in a big competition um, overseas. They were they weren't able. To, because, well, there's no mass, there hasn't been ever mass competitions in New Zealand. Um, so that was the closest race that they could, they would have the opportunity to come to. And they'd never seen me race in any other country before. So it was just, a, it just seemed obvious that they had to come and watch this one. Um, but it also meant that dad had to leave <laughs> New Zealand for, as you said, the first time in 45 years. Uh, so I understood his anxiety and the pressure of yeah okay see my daughter compete mm. and this is a once in a life opportunity but also that fear for him of having to um leave New Zealand so just just to um clarify like with he's just he's just doesn't find traveling a positive experience <laughs> he doesn't find it enjoyable which I think some people might relate to like he just sees it as a stress stressful ex experience so that's yeah. the reason why he'd never left New Zealand for, well, for that period of time I'm sure um, now he's glad that he went over though oh so glad yeah and now he's like he's now more than ever he's saying look this now you can see with how the world is, how dangerous it is, it is traveling, and this is why I don't like traveling. Look at the way the world is. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, of course, I'm really glad, and and that really 
I mean, that made a difference on the day, just knowing that every single lap, because um, race walking races, you they're usually it's either a two k loop or a one k loop, unlike the marathon or other endurance events. Um, so it means that you get to go past. I got to go past mum and dad mm. every 1K. So forget for the Commonwealth Games, it was a 1K lap. So I got to hear them every five minutes um, or even less because I could hear them from the other side <laughs> of the course too. <laughs> um, was that career yeah. highlight for you, that moment? Yeah, definitely. It was the whole It was the whole thing. It wasn't just the winning of the medal. It mm. was, um, I mean, that was, the, I, that was the cream on top really, but it was just the experience of competing close to home um in front of my family representing New Zealand uh and also my training partners um doing so well too I the the girl Jemima Montag who won the gold medal I'd been training with her leading up to the race so to see her get that was amazing um and then the girl that got the bronze medal she was um faced with me in Leeds um, in my earlier days when I was in England. So, and she was part of that group. In the so cool. So for us to all be on the podium together was just like, wow, like you can't beat this. Like everything happens for a reason. And that moment, like there's a reason why that happened. It's so much, like, honestly, it gives me goosebumps um, hearing you retell the stories about uh, that silver medal on the Gold Coast. Um, if we fast forward to this year, um, and you're obviously, you weren't at the Olympic Games this year. That would have been a goal for you. Um, how difficult was that? And then the decision to, you know, to walk away and say, it's my time. Mm, yeah, so I, um, since the Commonwealth Games, I was really focused on the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah. And um, then I went to World Champs in 2019 and I was, I was prepared more than ever um, for the world champs then, but I, I, I came 27th and I feel like I, there was more, you know, I made mistakes on race day. So mm. the Tokyo Olympics was a chance to, the, my preparations was continuing to still go well, but to repair the mistakes I made on the race day in Doha, um, world champs. So, um, yeah, so yeah, like obviously so much effort was going into it. Yeah. Um, and when the pandemic struck, it meant I was separated from my partner and my coach. Um, so my partner and my coach is the same person. <laughs> um, and that was, yeah, pretty massive. Um, but, and also I was in a position when the games got postponed. So I hadn't yet made a qualifying time um, pre um, pandemic, which would have been really helpful if I had, but I hadn't, um, which meant that I had to go overseas because there was no races in New Zealand for me to qualify for the Olympics. So I had this, I was in this position where I had to go overseas to do a qualifying time for the Olympics, but it's like the scary world of being in a pandemic. Yeah. But then I, and I also want to go overseas because I've got my coach and my partner, um, there in, um, Europe too. So it was, yeah, it was, it was difficult, but, um, but as I've said throughout my whole journey, is you've got to embrace it. Embrace it. You've got to look for the positives, and that that's why I made the decision, despite the pandemic, to leave New Zealand to um, to rat, to race overseas to get that qualifying time to see Damien again, um, and and to just put everything into it. But I would admit that um, 
that my anxiety did inter- interrupt my preparations. You know, that was an extra challenge. Just because was, of everything going on in the world. That, that's right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, what things are going through my mind, like, is this race going to happen? Is it, is it going to get cancelled? Um even logistical things like you normally would share a room um, with another athlete before a race or for training camps, and I was fearful of doing things like that and and join in with training groups, which I love to do, and that fear of you know spreading the virus yeah. or just things like that, things that you'd normally do. Um, and I, I, I then the next challenge was to get over this feeling of being anxious and living in the future. Like my mind was always thinking about the future and I wasn't focused on then and there and training, um, which then led me into exploring uh, techniques of being mindful and the power of living in the moment. And although in the past um, I was living in the moment, like common com games when I was, uh, you know, that race and getting that silver medal, I was definitely living in the moment. <laughs> But then we've got these extra things happening around you. Yeah. It's harder to live in the moment. Um, so that was the that was the challenge of of learning how to be mindful of where my mind was going. And, um, yeah. So I was really proud that despite not qualifying for the Olympics, I actually um, for New Zealand under the New Zealand requirements, I still did a I still ranked top sixty in the world. Yeah. And I qualified under the international Olympic. Um, standard so you um, you try your best but you've still got to be proud of achieving even if it's not exactly what you wanted you've, you've got to look at the positives and and um, um, you know celebrate your successes even yeah. if it's not your ultimate um, and so my last race that I did where I knew I wouldn't qualify for the Olympics but I still did a I still did an hour 32 um, uh, 50 and so I was still, you know, a minute or so off my personal best. I needed to celebrate that and that achievement rather than being like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, over a minute slower than my best. Um, you know, I've not made the Olympics. Instead, I was like, I've still, I'm still keeping up with the world's best. I'm still, I still was only a minute and, and a half off from my best. I even in the, in these trying times. So I like that would be the biggest advice I'd give athletes. I think we and um, we're always looking at ways to improve. But that's what makes us so good, and that's yeah. what makes us high performance athletes. But at, at the same time, it also you need to celebrate your success. And I would admit that looking back on my past performances, like you know making the Olympic team. Um, in 2016, I think I was like, oh, that's expected. That's part of the plan. That's, um, you know, that that's what I need to do. Um, but in fact, be like, no, this is, this is not the normal. This is, you're overachieving. You are doing great things and you need to reward yourself and, and celebrate that success. We have to leave the final word to you. What would you like to say about what you've achieved about your career or, or what comes next? Well, firstly, thank you for um, letting me share my journey. Um, but, but also, I, I think that I would love to be able to use my skills and my experience to now help other people in their journey. So I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen next now that I'm retired. I'm finishing my psychology degree. So now I'm looking for opportunities of how I can help other people that 
and I mean, so far in my career, it's all, it's been about me, me focusing on me being the best, um, but also representing New Zealand and, you know, what I can do for New Zealand. But now I can, I really want to share my, my knowledge, my experience and help other people achieve their best because I feel like it would just go to waste if I then move in and do something completely different. I feel like that's my calling now. Um, so yeah, I suppose that's what I'd like to say. That's what I'd like to leave on. What, what that means, I'm not sure. But. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure and I feel like we're all very lucky to have uh, heard and shared some of your journey with you. So Alana Barber, uh, Olympian, Commonwealth Games, silver medalist and all-round good sort, thank you so much for joining us here on Trailblazers on SENZ and we wish you uh, very well with what comes next and we'll definitely be catching up again soon. Oh, thanks, Kirsty. Thank you.